uh, that is our prayer this morning, God, that we could really indeed say, God, Lord, that you are more than enough for us, Lord, that you are our supply, you are our life, Lord, and that you give us all the things that we need, Lord. And so uh, we want to pray that prayer to you, God, Lord, that you are more than enough for us. We thank you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, Lighthouse. Let me go get situated here. How's everyone doing? You guys awake? You guys have one less hour of sleep, right? Hopefully you guys are awake. Well, so the last several weeks, um, we've been going through our message series called God is Closer Than You Think. And uh, the main idea of this series is that uh, we, we realize that God is, is right there. Uh, even though we might feel like God is distant or God is, is far away from us, uh, but that God is actually right there with us, next to us. And often each day He's beckoning us to be closer and closer to Him and that we find out that God is closer than we normally, normally think. Today my message title is Partnering with God Today. Uh, in the book, uh, God is Closer Than You Think by John Ortbuck, uh, he mentions a story, an interesting story in the Bible. And you might be familiar with this story. And it's a story of Moses in which he's given this, this huge task of setting the Israelites free. And God gives him this, this great task of, of being able to have to convince the Egyptian pharaoh to set the people of God free from, you know, from enslavement. And to help Moses make his case in convincing pharaoh, God gives him this ability to call down on Egypt these various different kinds of plagues. Uh, you might be familiar with some of those plagues. Uh, you know, one of them was you know, the plague of gnats, flies, boils, or hail. But one of, the, one of them that's pretty interesting is actually the plague of frogs. So God sends an army of frogs to just overrun Egypt. So you just got to picture it, right? There's frogs everywhere, all around the area. There's, there's frogs inside. There's frogs outside. There's frogs in each and every room. There's, there's frogs coming out of the pipes. There's frogs coming out of the toilet, right? There's, there's frogs everywhere. And these aren't these, you know, nice, cute little frogs that you see in, like, cartoons or anything. These are, like, those big, slimy, ugly, with warts all over them kind of frogs. They're, they're disgusting kind of frogs. And, and the frogs have overrun the whole land. And then finally, it has gotten to, to Pharaoh's attention. And so Pharaoh asks Moses if he can ask his God to take away the frogs and to relieve his people from this plague. So Moses replies in this kind of exaggerated, courteous way, and he says, I leave to you the honor of setting the time for me to pray that you and your houses may be rid of the frogs. And then you know what Pharaoh's response is? Instead of saying, sure, all right, get to it, do it, he actually says, tomorrow. Can you imagine that? The, the, the frogs are already overrunning the entire place, and instead of demanding that Moses prays right at that moment when he offers, he tells him, wait till tomorrow. Let's, let's wait till tomorrow. Moses is probably all confused. He's like, are you serious? You know, I could just say the word, and, and all the frogs will be gone. But no, Pharaoh tells him to wait till tomorrow. This is actually a pretty dangerous mindset that isn't only attributed to Pharaoh, but in actuality, that often describes each of us. God is closer than you think. Each moment, He comes to each of us, inviting us to come into His presence, offering Himself to partner with us, and for many of us, we just say, tomorrow. We push it off to another day, we push it off to another moment. 
But God wants to partner with us today. And it's a moment in which we are challenged to respond to Him today. There's another famous story in Scripture where, where God comes to this ordinary person, challenging him to partner with, with him, with God, to do a great and amazing work. And this is the story of Gideon. The story of Gideon comes to us in Judges 6, verses 1 through 24. And if you have your Bibles with you or your smartphones, you can whip it out and, and go to Judges 6. I'm just going to read the, the, the passage for us, and you actually can look up on the screen as well. It's going to be up there. And it's a fairly long passage, but I want you to pay attention to kind of how God interacts with Gideon through this. So let me read it for us. Judges 6. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, the Malachites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I, have, I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied. But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Gideon replied, if now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. Gideon went inside, prepared a young goat, and from an ephah of flour, he made bread without yeast. Putting the meat in a basket and his broth in a pot, he brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. The angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of the staff that was in his hand. Fire flared down from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Alas, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid. You are not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it stands in Ophrah of the Abizrites. This is the word of God. Would you just bow your heads for a short moment in prayer? 
Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the ways in which you draw close to us, Lord, and that you invite us into your presence, God. I pray, Lord, that as we come into your presence right now in this moment, God, that you would challenge us and you would encourage us, God, Lord, to be able to, to come and partner with you today, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to, to open up our ears and our hearts and our, and our minds, God, Lord, to be able to receive from you and what your scripture has to say upon our lives, God. And so may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts in this room be pleasing unto you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So in this passage, uh, we get this introduction of a man named Gideon. And, and I wanted to kind of take a step back and give a little bit of the context of the situation. The passage is taken from the book of Judges, and the book of Judges details a time period in Israel's history where the people of God were now in the promised land. You know, before this, they were under Egyptian rule, right? And God had delivered the Israelites from this slavery under the Egyptians, right? And I mentioned it before with, with the story of Moses, right? But Moses came in with, through his leadership. He, he inflicted all these different plagues, right? And it finally convinces the, the Pharaoh to let the, the Israelites go. And so they go, and they're freed from this the slavery. And so then they, they're after in this point, they're, they're wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, right? They're going around, going around, and then finally, after those 40 years, they get to the promised land, right? And, and through the leadership of, of Joshua, who was, he was handed down the leadership from Moses, they go and he, he leads the people of God to the promised land, and then the, and the people of God then claim the land for themselves, right? Judges is now this time period in which they had seized the land that God had promised them, and now they lived as this tribal league or this association or this, this organization within the promised land. And the people were ruled by these leader, leaders called judges who were raised up by God to help the Israelites to live in right accord with God. But the problem that often occurred time and time again was that um, the people of God would turn away. They, they would often go towards and they would accept and, and adopt the different gods of the, the surrounding nations and they would take them up and then they would go and worship these idols, right? And then that would anger God because God told them each time and time again, he said, the one main command I have for you is, is to worship me and not to adopt these different gods, right? And so over and over, you see throughout Israel's history, they go and then they, they're, they're in right record with God and then they turn away and then they worship these idols and then God, you know, allows them to go through their own suffering and then God in his great compassion and mercy brings them up and, and helps them to come back to him, right? And, and we see that happen over and over again. And now we get to this point of Gideon, right? Where Gideon is now raised up to be that same leader, that, to be that judge to help them to come in right record with God. And we see in the beginning of this passage already, the Israelites were back at it again, turning away from God. It says in the opening verse that the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They had turned away yet again, not learning from their past failures. And so as they committed evil in the eyes of God, God allows the Midianites, another surrounding tribal nation, to torment and harass the Israelites. The Scriptures points out that the situation was pretty bad. The Israelites were so scared to even go outside that they would actually hold themselves up in caves and mountains because they were so afraid of the Midianites. And the Midianites would just continually harass the people of God, stealing their crops and their livestock, and whatever they didn't need, they would actually just burn them, right? And it wasn't a, a very good situation. The Israelites were, were in this situation where they were just, they were tormented. But then the Israelites then remember 
how God had delivered them so many times before. And so they turn back to God and they cry out to him for help once again. And then God tells them why they're suffering, right? He sends them a prophet, and the prophet tells them, hey, you know, the reason why you're going through all of this hardship is because you didn't listen to that command I gave you, right? To, 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 to worship me and not turn towards these idols, right? And so they're aware of their situation. And so God then decides in his mercy, in his compassion, to deliver the people of God using an ordinary person in the crowd, and his name was Gideon. And so we meet Gideon, the son of Joash the Abizrite. And he was just this regular guy. Nothing really special about him. Nothing that made him stick out for people to want to have confidence in him. If anything, he probably stuck out for being such a dweeb or such a geek or, or a weakling of a guy. I, I don't remember, I, I don't know if, you know if you remember this, but for myself, when I was growing up, right, you, you, you go to gym class, P.E., and the, the PE teacher would, you know, break, break up, uh, you know, the kids and, and allow you to play a game of, you know, kickball or dodgeball. And, and sometimes the, the PE teacher would pick two captains, right? And you say, you're, you're the captain, you're the captain. Now you can go ahead and pick your team, right? And each captain would take their picks and they would pick someone who they thought would help them with, you know, win the game. And then you get to the very last few picks and you get down to the kids that maybe weren't that athletic or maybe were a little uncoordinated, Right? And it was your biggest fear to hopefully not be that last pick, right? The pick that no one wanted on their team. Well, Gideon was probably that last kid that always got picked last of all the kids. He was special in the fact that he wasn't anything quite special at all. But in God's eyes, God had a purpose for Gideon, and he goes out to speak to Gideon first of all people and to raise him up and to use him to deliver the people of God. We find Gideon, he's threshing wheat down in a wine press because he's afraid of the Midianites from coming and stealing his food. What you have to understand here is this is a picture of just how cowardly Gideon actually is. Okay, see, normally when you were to thresh wheat, okay, you would actually do it in the open air. You would do it on the threshing floor, and the threshing floor was outside. And the reason why you would do this is because you would take the, the, the wheat that you had and you would hit it against a rock or you would hit it against a floor or you would hit it against the wall, okay, that you might have. And then what happens is that the grain would fall out and then the leaves would fall out, the stalks, parts of the stalks would fall out, right, the, the shaft would fall out onto the ground. And then you would allow the, the wind to blow and then the leaves and the shaft and all that would blow off and then the grain would remain on the ground, okay. But we see... Gideon actually threshing wheat in the wine press, which is, you know, several feet underground where there's no open air for him to use. And so what, what he was trying to accomplish would take so much longer for him to do. He would have to go in and thresh, you know, the wheat, and then all of it would fall down in a pot, and then he would have to meticulously pick out the leaves one by one and pull them out. And so we, show, we see Gideon, he's so afraid of the Midianites that he's hiding underground and he's doing a job that should take a lot less of a time to do, but he's doing this, this other job and it takes forever for him, but it's because he's so afraid that he's going to get robbed. And so we see a picture of the ultimate coward in Gideon. And it's at this particular point that we see God's interaction with Gideon and the beginning of God offering to partner with God. And it becomes a start of a transformation process that takes Gideon from this ordinary guy to a great hero. 
And there's three important things that happen in this interaction with Gideon. And the first thing that happens is that God calls Gideon a new name and places within him a new identity. In verse 12 of the passage, it says, The angel of the Lord comes to Gideon and says, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. God ends up calling Gideon a mighty warrior, an identity that might be pretty opposite of how Gideon felt at that moment. Gideon was so surprised by this, this calling that he's like, What? what? Are, are you talking to me? Do, do you have the right person? It's almost like in that moment, Gideon has no idea that God's talking to him, right? Like that he's that mighty warrior. I don't know if this has ever happened to you, or maybe someone calls you by a compliment, right? And you have no idea that they're talking to you. Like maybe someone would yell out to me and be like, hey, awesome, cool, handsome dude, right? And you're like, oh. is someone behind me, right? They're like, are you talking about me? Right? But, but that's kind of the response that, that Gideon gives. He, he, he's like, oh, who, who are you talking to? Do you realize who I am? I'm far from being any kind of mighty warrior. I, I'm, I'm no hero. I'm from the weakest clan in my tribe. I'm, I'm, I'm the lowest of sons in my own family. I'm definitely the wrong person. You've got the wrong guy, God. And the beautiful thing at this point is that in the calling of Gideon is that we come to see how God views each of us. That God doesn't view us as we are right now, but He looks towards what we will become and how God intends us to be. At the moment, Gideon was just this cowardly man, scared to be in the open field, right? Doubtful of his standing in his own family, in his own clan. In the eyes of society, he looks like this pitiful loser, but God looked at him and saw a mighty warrior that would be used by God. Some of you may be looking at your own lives thinking that you're in such a sorry state that, that there's no way that you could be a hero or that you could be a person that is used by God. But God looks at each of us with a vision for our lives, and He looks not at how we are at the moment, but how God wants to mold us and transform us to be powerful people of faith. And so God looks at each of us and gives us this new identity, mighty warrior, woman of power, man of faith, prince, beautiful princess, my child, my beloved. God looks at each of us in this moment and gives us this new identity. And so we can look toward that vision that God has for us and go beyond how we might feel in the present moment. There was a news article that was published several years ago. It was a story about a name-changing ceremony that was held in India. There were 285 girls who were changing their names. All the girls had birth names of either Nakusa or Nakushi, which literally meant unwanted in Hindi. All these girls were given the name because they were told from their birth that they were unwanted or that they were a disappointment to their family. And so in this naming ceremony, the girls were able to shed the name of unwanted for other names that might have conveyed strength, beauty, or joy. They gave themselves these own, their own new names. And one young girl said in the article, Now in school, my classmates and friends will be calling me this new name, and that makes me really happy. See, today, Jesus is the one giving us that new name, a new name that speaks into our life and gives us power, strength, beauty, and dignity. He calls us new names of, of friend, forgiven, righteous, my child, my precious. 
And Jesus calls off to shed off the names that maybe you've been given in the past or that maybe you've been called in the past, hurtful names that, that said that you were ugly, that you were despised, you were unworthy. Instead, Jesus calls us these new names and breathes new life into our new identities in Him. And for others of us, God has already given you a beautiful name, but we've forgotten the significance of that name and the promise of what God has called us into. Growing up as a kid, I actually grew up despising my name. Come on, you know, I don't have a normal name, okay? Like, I don't have a name like John, Peter, David, right? Like, my parents had to name me Abraham, Abraham Kim, okay? And I remember hating the sound of my name. I just remember, you know, I picture this. I remember I was, I was playing in the neighborhood with my friends, right? And every day, you know, around 6 o'clock, every day without fail, my dad would, would come to the front door. He'd open up the door, and then he would yell out at the top of his lungs. He would say, Abraham, come inside. Abraham, it's dinner time, right? Every day. And then right as he says that, my, my friends would all start cracking up in laughter, right? They'd be like, Abraham, right? And they're like, uh-huh, Abraham, right? And they just start making fun of me. I remember when I was going into kindergarten, and I actually, I remember this. And I remember when the, when the teacher goes and, and does like kind of a roll call and, you know, says each student's name, and finally would get to my name. And so she would say, Abraham Kim, right? And once she would say that name, all the kids would snicker and chuckle and laugh, right? And then they'd, and they'd, and they'd find out that I was the one that had that name. I would raise my hands, and then we'd all start pointing at me, and they'd be like, be like, oh, Abraham Lincoln, oh, where's your top hat and beard? You're so old, right? And I remember just hearing that moment. It's just funny how a comment like that from your past can stick with you for all these years. And so I remember remembering that all the time. And that would actually follow through me all the way up until college where people would start making fun of my name. But, right? but I hated my name. I hated the sound of my name. I, I used to get bitter, actually, towards my parents. I thought to myself, why did they name me after a president like Abraham Lincoln? You know, he's not even good looking, right? He's like, actually, he's kind of creepy looking if you want to look at some of the pictures, right? And so I used to get so upset. I'd be like, why would they name me after Abraham Lincoln? So after I gained enough courage, I started, I went to my dad and I said, and I demanded to him, I said, why did you name me after Abraham Lincoln, right? And he chuckled, he paused, and he says, you know, we didn't name you after Abraham Lincoln. We named you after Abraham in the Bible. And then I responded, oh, okay, okay, now that, that makes a little bit more sense, okay? But but now that just makes me sound like I'm really old. It sounds like an old Jewish guy, right? Like, why would you name me after Abraham then, right? And then so then my, my father begins to tell me the story of why, how he came to, the, to, to name me Abraham. He tells me how, how my father believed that, that God was calling him out of his homeland of South Korea into an unknown country in the United States. And that my father decided that he would follow God's will to this new land and trust that, that God had a plan for him. And in that trust and that, in that faith, I was born in this new land, this unfamiliar land to my father. Right? But not only that, my father told me he believed, like Abraham, that I would become a man of faith as well. And that God would use me one day to change the world in some kind of significant form. And I remember hearing that, that story from my father, and something changed within me. I started having appreciation for that name, right? 
I didn't feel ashamed when my name was called anymore. I, I didn't feel embarrassed when, when people would, would say my name in a mocking manner. I actually started fi- feeling proud of that name that God, or that my Father had given me. The, the promise is that today for many of us, God calls us to a new name. A name that signifies hope, strength, redemption. And for many of us, maybe for many of us, we just need a reminder of that original name that God has already given to us. That when God calls us, we know that He calls us His own and He calls us His beloved. And so we can stand up tall, raise our heads up high, and know that we are called princes and princesses in the kingdom of God. And with our new names, we've been given the power and the authority to bring transformation into this world. That's the first truth that we learn from this passage. The second thing that God does with Gideon is that he reassures Gideon of his presence with him. We find that God calls Gideon to be courageous and deliver the Israelites from the strong Midianite clan. And and Gideon is still pretty fearful of this calling from God, right? But God reassures him with the words, I will be with you. The funny thing about Gideon is that when God calls him with those powerful words, right, he actually doesn't realize or he doesn't really fully believe in what's going on. So Gideon asks God to confirm the truth with him, to confirm that it's actually God talking to him. He, he thinks he's like imagining things or something. He, he's starting to have all these doubts. And so what does he do? He goes and he says, he, he's like, let me confirm this with you, God. And so he goes and he prepares some goat meat, some unleavened bread, and he makes this little broth. He offers this food to God, and, right, and God tells him then to put it on the rock and to put the broth onto the, on, pour onto the, the rock. And at this point, this fire engulfs the, the meat and the broth. And immediately then, God, Gideon realizes that it's God talking to him. Right? The great thing about this picture, though, is also is that we see that God still works with us as we're feeling a bit of doubt and fear. Right? This act that God does in confirming God's presence isn't an excuse for us to, to put God to the test. But what it does show us is that God continually tries to reassure us of our fears and our doubts. It's okay for us to have doubts. God can deal with your doubts and your insecurities, right? What God can't deal with, though, is your disobedience. When Gideon is being called to do this this crazy feat, Gideon naturally is going to be scared. He's naturally going to be doubtful, right? But he was still willing to move towards obedience and following God's lead. He showed that, yes, he was scared. Yes, he did doubt. God was able to work with him through it and to reassure him that his presence was truly with him and will continue to be with him. See, I believe once Gideon came to the place where he trusted in God's presence, he started living into this new identity that was given to him just a few moments ago. He started living out this identity of being a mighty and courageous warrior. He began to have confidence in the fact that God was on his side. In Romans 8.31, the Apostle Paul talks about how we are to act knowing that God is with us. And he asks this question in the verse, if God is for us, who can be against us? Right? There's no one that is greater than our almighty God. So we don't need to be scared or fearful. So when I was growing up, I was a late bloomer. Um, so I didn't hit my growth spurt until my junior, senior year of high school. And so all throughout my life, I was like this pretty scrawny little kid. I know that's hard to believe looking at how I turned out now, you know, how buff I am and everything, right? But I was this scrawny little kid all throughout my life, right? 
And when I was in junior high, I was still one of the smallest and lightest kids in the school. I was really short. I was really skinny, right? And I was, I think maybe at that point, I was still like under five, like way under five feet tall. And I also wasn't the most popular kid at school or one of the guys that, that you would consider cool or anything. Again, I know it's hard to believe that, but, but it's true, okay? And so there was this one day I was working on a project for one of my classes, and I ended up staying a little bit later after the bell had rang, the last and final bell. And so I was working on it. And then I realized, like, at 10 minutes through, I was like, okay, I, I better start moving because I'm going miss, to miss my bus. And so I get, get all my things together, and I start, you know, getting all my stuff, and I start running towards my locker because I need to get all some of the, my books and, and things that I need to accomplish for that night. And so I'm running through the hallways. I'm weaving through people, weaving through the different crowds, right? I finally get to my locker. I open up my locker. I pull out all the books that I need, put it in my, into my, my backpack, right? And then I'm going, and I'm like, okay, I think I have enough time to make it to, to the bus, right? And so I run now towards the bus, and I'm running and weaving by people again. And, and at that time, I was small, but I was still pretty fast. And so I'm running as fast as I can, and I get through, and then bam! And it's like, lights out. I'm like... <laughs> And I felt like I hit, I hit a wall or something. And I'm on the ground at this point, and I'm looking up, and I realize it wasn't a wall, but it was actually this big Filipino kid in my school. And I found out that, that he was one of the popular and the biggest kid, actually, Filipino kid that, in my school. And, and I'm looking up at him, and I realize that, that he's not happy. I look around and all his books and in his papers had fallen to the floor. And I'm looking up at this Goliath of a kid and he's looking back at me and I'm thinking in my head he's going to try to like step on me or something, right? And I'm thinking, oh man, I got this guy mad, right? I'm going to get beaten up right now. Right? And so I do what any respectable, dignified man would do. And I stand up a little bit. And I start begging, and I say, don't hurt me, man. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I ran into you. I'm sorry, right? And he says back to me, he says, sorry ain't good enough, right? And so I was like, whoa, okay. <laughs> I'm in trouble here, right? And so I realized, okay, now, now there's, there's no way the fight can be avoided. So I'm actually going to get into a fight. And so I go up, and I was like, okay, now I gather the, the real dignity that I had, right? And so I go, and I, and I look at him eye to eye, and he's towering above me. And I, and I start to raise my fists, right? And I'm ready to go. My, my hands are all sweaty, and I don't know if I maybe teared a little bit in that moment. Right? No, probably not. But, but I was looking at him, and I was scared. And I started to try to put my tough face as, you know, as much as I could. And as I'm doing that, I notice a change in his facial expression. Right? I look, before he looked all angry, and now he actually started looking scared. It looked like he, he had seen a ghost or something. And he's looking at it, and I'm like, oh, it must be because of these fists, these guns, right? He's afraid of those things, right? And then he pauses, and then he says to me, he says, are you Wesley Kim's little brother? And I say, yeah, yeah, Wes, Wes is my brother. And then I ended up finding out, so my, my middle brother, Wesley, was several years older than them, and he was in high school, and he had this reputation to be this, this tough fighter, right? Some, some guy that you didn't want to mess with. And so I ended up finding later on that this, this Filipino kid actually had an older brother who was friends with or had known my middle brother, right? And so because of my middle brother had this reputation, he, he made the connection that I was Wesley Kim's younger brother. And so then once he made that connection, 
He goes up to me and he goes, oh, I'm so sorry, man, for getting in your way. Right? He's like, I'll pick up my papers, my books, you know, don't worry about me. It seemed like you were in a hurry. Go on to wherever you need to get to, right? And, and whatever fear that I had just a minute ago, I, I felt like I was on top of the world. And so then I go and look at him and go, yeah, yeah, that's right. Don't mess with me, right? <laughs> it's kind of ridiculous, right? You know, I was so scared at that one moment, and now I'm like full of confidence right after. But this was simply because of the fact that this guy knew that my older brother had my back. And because I was related to him, people were afraid to mess with me. In the same way, Gideon came to that conclusion that God had his back. And because God promised to be there with him and for him and, and saying that I will be with you, Gideon didn't have to be afraid anymore. And God gives us that same promise as well to all of us who call on his name. And he tells us, all, I will be with you. And if we can, can come to understand that, that God's presence is always with us, that we have nothing to fear anymore. What can we fear if we know that the God that created this universe, our creator, our almighty maker, is for us and he promises his presence to be with us, there's nothing to give us fear. Amen? God promises his presence with us. And so when God calls us to do something crazy, crazy as it might sound, we can have confidence that God is with us and will help us to accomplish it. That's the second thing that happens with Gideon. Here's the last thing. The last thing we learn in this passage is that God leaves us with a challenge and a choice. A challenge to trust in Him, to use us, to do some of the craziest defeats. A challenge to be obedient to His call and to follow Him even when we may have some unresolved doubts. Maybe we have some fears. In the beginning of this passage, God calls Gideon in, and He gives him this huge challenge of being the one to save Israel from the Midianites. He makes this challenge in verse 14. He says, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hands. Gideon initially responds with doubt and fear, but eventually Gideon decides to be obedient to this crazy challenge. He decides to trust in God and to take upon this call to save Israel. He puts his trust in God and he acts courageously towards taking the step of obedience. And we begin to see how God is able, Gideon partners with God in the next moment. We see in the very next chapter of Judges. You know, we received that same calling and challenge from God this morning. The call that Jesus gives to each of us is to partner with him today and to come and follow. It's a drastic call as well. It's a call to drop everything and follow after him. It's not a call that says, when you're ready, then you can come follow me. Or a call that says, yeah, you can wait until tomorrow. You know, Jesus doesn't say that, that when you've taken care of all the things that you need to do, then you can come and follow me. Instead, it's this extreme and radical call by Jesus to go and follow him. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he always had that same calling to those that he met. And it's simply, come and follow me. Simple words, but tough in how we are to respond. In another passage in the New Testament, that Jesus calls people to follow him, and he says in Luke 14, if anyone comes to me and does not hate their father, mother, wife, and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Right? That's pretty intense, right, coming from Jesus. You know, Jesus gives this call to everyone to say, you know, it's either you're all in or you're all out. 
There's there's really no middle ground in following Jesus. But why would Jesus say that you need to hate your family members? Doesn't that sound a little contradictory or something kind of a little crazy? And the reason is not that Jesus is making us hate our families in the active sense, but he's asking us, what do you put your priority in? See, in, in, back in this day, in the Jewish family structure, family was, was everything. It, it was the, the, one of the most important things that you had as a Jewish person. You were called to remain loyal to your family and to your family name. And so when Jesus is saying to hate your family, to follow him, he's essentially asking, do you put your family above following after me? He's saying that in order to follow after Jesus, everything else in comparison that might be holding you back will and should become hated in comparison. And so typically the, the family was often that main thing holding people back. And Jesus is saying, can you end up hating your family in comparison to, to, to following me? In, in all this, Jesus is saying that I won't be a means to an end. Because if there's any condition to you following after me, or any excuses at all, it's not going to work. If you go to Jesus and say, I'll follow you if uh, I, I get a job. I'll follow you if uh, you know, my parents approve of me, if my family is taken care of, if uh, I, 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 my, you know, my finances are more secure, if my career takes off, if, if I find a spouse, right? if I can finally retire, if, if my children come back to me. See, whatever might be your if reason, Jesus is showing you that most likely is your true master and your true goal. And Jesus' call to discipleship says that we can't use Jesus as a means to an end. Because when Jesus calls us to be his disciples, he's asking that we place Jesus as our main goal. So when Jesus calls you to follow him, he's asking you to, to drop everything to put aside those if reasons, and to come and follow the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. When I was a little kid, I always looked up to my father. Um, reflecting on my childhood, I realized uh, probably the, the greatest hero in my life was actually my own dad. You know, I had other, you know, childhood heroes too at the time, you know, one of them being, you know, the Phoenix Suns guard, Kevin Johnson, who's now like the mayor of Sacramento, but no celebrity or, or sports star could compare to my dad. I would love hearing these stories about how my dad was when he was younger, and I, had, you know, and I found out that he was an athlete, he used to be a sprinter, he used to play soccer really well, and I love hearing these stories about him, and I would just, just kind of just sit and just listen, and I love hearing it. And so I remember just growing up thinking to myself as a little boy that I wanted to be just like my dad. As I grew up, I, had, I continued to have this strong respect and awe for my father. And it's actually kind of funny that I ended up following him in his career choice as well. My father was a senior pastor of a large-sized Korean church for all of my life. And I never really thought, you know, growing up that I would actually become a pastor like my dad. But, you know, God has certain plans for each of us. And for my life, he had called me into ministry just like my father. As I got older, I realized that the, one of the biggest goals in my life was not that I would become successful or, or that maybe I would just become just a mirror image of my father in that way, but my, my, my goal actually was that maybe my father would look at me and say, I'm proud of you, my son. You know, I guess as a youngest child of three sons, I, I wanted to stick out. I wanted my father to notice me out of the other brothers, right? right? And I wanted him to look at me with pride. 
And so I figured that when I did decide to go into ministry, that maybe my dad would then tell me that he was proud of me. But he never said that to me when I made that decision. I might have shared this with some of you here at Lighthouse, but the main thing that was interfering with my relationship with my father at the time was my dating relationship. I was dating my now wife, Ashley, and my father wanted me to end this relationship immediately. Some of you may know this or maybe just never noticed it, but Ashley is not Korean. Although people say she may look a little Korean or she could say a lot of Korean words or whatever, she's not Korean. She's Chinese-American. And simply because of that difference in culture, my parents made it a mission for us not to be together or or to, to not get married. And so for several years, I ended up arguing with my parents repeatedly, asking them to just be open-minded about our situation. You know, I kept trying to plead with them. You know, Ashley is this awesome girl, a solid Christian woman who was passionate for God, who loved Jesus. But still my parents were stubborn with their thoughts, and they would continue to forbid me from being with one another. I remember this one time in the middle of our years of fighting, our several years of fighting, my father said to me in his anger, He said, I will never be proud of you because of your disobedience. There was a moment later on that my father got pretty ill and he ended up collapsing while actually he got, uh, while he was preaching. And and he he was kind of just from all the stress and the anxiety that he had in in ministry and life. And so my mother comes to me later on and she sits me down and she says to me, if you stay in this relationship with Ashley, that you are going to end up killing your father because of all the stress that you're putting on his life. It's like typical Korean drama stuff right there. (laughs) And I remember that night, like, I I was a total mess. Like, the deepest part of me, wanting my father to just be proud of me, Right? to notice me and to say that, that he was a proud of the man that I had become. Right? I felt like I lost it. But now I started seeing that because of this relationship that I had with, with Ashley, it was making my father have this disdain to more, toward me and, and, and apparently was causing him to go to the grave early. You know, and I started asking, God, why did God give me this relationship that I knew was a blessing for him to only hurt my relationship with my father? Why was all of this happening? And that's when I realized that I was living my life to please my father more than following after God and the plans that God had for my life. See, I kept telling God, you know, God, I'll follow you and I'll I'll do whatever you have for my life if you just let my father be proud of me. I'll follow you into ministry wherever you call me to if you just make my father look at me with pride. I had all these conditions to truly following after Jesus. I had all these requirements or excuses to have God wait. And in this instance, God was saying to me, will you follow me even if you never receive those words of affirmation from your earthly father? And I remember making a commitment that day that I would follow after God's will for my life, for God's plan for my life. And I won't be ruled by the opinions of my parents or anyone else for that matter. But I would look towards God for his approval and his approval alone. And so I decided that day that that I was going to move forward uh, with continuing in this relationship with Ashley. And I was going to allow this relationship to become a blessing to others around us. 
and I would follow and be obedient to whatever call that God had placed upon my life. And the beautiful thing was that after I made that commitment, I don't know how to explain it, but there was a peace that came over me. I'm not going to lie and just say, right after I made that commitment or made that vow, that life was easy, that everything fell into place immediately. No, it didn't. Actually, life got even harder after that moment. My, my relationship with my parents got even worse. We had even more yelling and, and different things where we were fighting with each other constantly. There was this huge dividing wall between my parents during that time. And, and through God's grace, though, I, I decided to continue with you know, following after God, and I ended up marrying my beautiful wife, Ashley. And my parents had threatened for a year that they wouldn't show up to that wedding. But then that wedding came, and a month or so before the wedding, my father calls me up, and he says, yeah, we, we will go to your wedding. And since we got married, I will say that my, my, my father and my mother have, have done a 180. They've come to, to accept us. They've come to love us, and they gave us their blessing. And finally, maybe several years, years back, maybe a few years back, actually, I heard for the first time my father tell me that he was proud of me. And, and that, that meant a lot for me. But I realized, though, that now I'm in a place where my discipleship in following Jesus is more important than whether my, my earthly father is now proud of me. Even though I make plenty of mistakes and make some of the wrong choices, God continues to help me in this journey when I'm following His lead. See, I believe that Jesus is offering each one of us that same exact calling and challenge that he gives to his very first disciples, and the same challenge that God gives to Gideon and now to us. He's saying these simple words of come and follow me. Come and partner with me today. And the choice for us today is are we willing to respond to that calling? Are we willing to, to drop everything, give up some of the dreams that you've been clinging onto or the excuses that you've been constantly giving to God and, and say and decide today that yes, you will follow him. To say to God, I will follow you even if my career doesn't take off. Even if my parents never approve of my life choices. Even if I never get married. Even if my family members' health doesn't improve. Even if my, fa my finances stabilize. Even if the, the things that I need to take care of never get resolved. I will follow you, Jesus, wherever you go and let you do the leading over my life. When you can say those words to Jesus, that's when you fully encounter the true and living Messiah. And the hope for us today is that we can respond to the words of Jesus and we can say to him, say, yes, Lord, I will follow you today. Right? The hope is today that you might be able to respond to our almighty and powerful God in saying that you will partner with him today. Not tomorrow, but today. We lay down our excuses, we lay down our doubts, we lay down whatever it is that's holding us back, and we say, Jesus, I will follow you today. Would you pray with me? I'm going to invite you to take the next minute or so to really just sit before God. You can pray to God silently. Uh, you can meditate. Um, 
But as maybe you've been hearing these words, maybe there, there's something that, that comes to your mind, something that's holding you back from fully being able to follow Jesus and take up that call and that challenge that he gives you today. Whatever that might be, that maybe you can use this time to lay it down at God's feet. And for some of you, maybe you're, you're kind of unsure of what it is that's actually holding you back. And yet you can take this time to, to just ask the Holy Spirit to give you some clarity, to bring to light what exactly is that thing that's holding you back. And when you can finally realize what it is, that you can ask God to give you the courage and the boldness to be able to lay it down at Jesus' feet. So I'm going to take the next moment for you to, for you to do that, the opportunity to, to just lay them down before God, and then I'll close this in prayer.